Welcome back to another episode of You Have My Interest, the show that helps you make smart moves with your money by giving you tips, tricks, and tools to help navigate your wealth journey. I'm your host, Evelyn Clark, Director and Finance Broker at Everland. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which we are recording and you are listening today. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I hope you all enjoyed last week's episode on what type of property should I buy first, where we went through owner-occupied versus investing and also the different types of property asset classes. Today, we have a Q&A episode on the same topic. We've got a few episodes from the listeners, which I want to share with you all. These have come through from Instagram and people messaging in from the show. So the first question that we have is rent vesting versus buying your own home, which is better? Now, the first thing that we spoke about last week was aligning the property purchase strategy to your overall goals. So that's definitely one thing to consider with that question. However, rent vesting, I believe, is becoming more popular because it allows you to buy where you can afford to, and that is going to meet your overall strategy with property, but also live in the area and the location that you want to live. Previously, more inner city areas may have been far more affordable in terms of buying something that had that capital growth potential, which is really, I think, what the investors are chasing that are doing the rent vesting goal. Um, And that's why this probably wasn't something that was really seen up until the last five years or so, I would say. Rent vesting allows you to be getting your foot into the property market. Yes, you do have to ensure that you're paying full stamp duty, so you need a high deposit to start with. You can't borrow as much for an investment property as you can for an owner-occupied property. So again, you're going to have more of a deposit to cover that gap as well. And there aren't any first-home buyer concessions and incentives in order to achieve that purchase that allow you to waive lender's mortgage insurance or receive some sort of other grant or concession from the government. So overall, you're typically probably going to buy something of a lower value if you're rent vesting. And that's why you can rent vest and purchase initially in a more regional area that potentially has that capital growth potential or higher rental yields. So it's getting your foot into the market sooner with the deposit that you have that potentially that deposit wasn't going to allow you to get the same type of property that's going to perform the same way from an investment point of view in the area that you wanted to live. And so I'm definitely seeing far more of this. The other thing with rent vesting is if you are still living at home, you're generally going to have a higher borrowing capacity to once you've bought that first property, release some equity and buy the second one because you don't have the outgoings of paying rent on top of buying that property and saving for the deposit on the side. So yeah, I would say rent vesting is a fantastic strategy um, if that is something that is going to work to your longer term goals that we're seeing far more and more of. And I'm typically seeing that a lot of people are using the rent vesting strategy over buying owner-occupied ha- uh, properties where they're happy where they're living, where they may be still living at home with mum and dad or they may still be studying on the side of earning some income or something like that that allows them to buy two or three properties over the course of you know maybe two to five years of a lower value but with high capital growth potential and then they can either sell those properties or they can again leverage the income from that and buy again. So you don't actually have to ever own a property to live in if you don't want to. Um, The alternative of buying your own home first of all tends to mean that depending on your overall borrowing capacity you may not be able to buy that larger asset with land value. So 
that's what I would answer in regards to that question. Um, but it depends on what you're wanting to buy. The second question that we have is, if you're buying an investment property as a first property, are you still eligible for the stamp duty concessions on your first home down the line if rules don't change? If rules don't change, depending on the state that you live in, yes, you are. So if you buy a investment property that you never live in, you never receive any stamp duty concessions or benefits from it, any first home buyer benefits, then you are eligible in Victoria in particular to then buy a property up to $600,000 with full stamp duty concessions and between six hundred and seven hundred and fifty dollars with a sliding scale. Now, the difference here is you may not be eligible for the 95% government guarantee that limits lender's mortgage insurance or waives lender's mortgage insurance, but you definitely are eligible for the stamp duty concessions. In other states, it's not that case. Um, so you may need to just check with your state. And the next question is, is it common that couples have investment property loans in one name or both names when building a portfolio, considering where serviceability is okay on one partner? This is a really good question. It's actually come up a lot for me in the last few weeks. So we'll look at some of the rules with the lenders around buying in your own name when you are in a relationship or a de facto relationship as a part of this question. But let's first of all look at some of the reasons why you might buy a property in one name. Typically, that tends to be for asset protection, where you may be a business owner, for example, and not want to put an asset in your property because of the liability and the risk. And that way you may end up putting it in just your spouse's name. However, that's definitely something you want to get accounting advice around. And the second main reason I tend to see is when a client potentially wants to link the investment property into a particular person's name only based on their taxable income and the benefits that they get. So if you're buying a property that is negatively geared and is going to give you a tax deduction, you may decide to put that in the higher income earner's name to give them the maximum amount of tax deductions possible from that property. Uh, whereas if you're buying something that is positively geared, you wouldn't want to put that in that person's name because then they're going to have to pay more tax on the income that they earn on it. So that is another reason why I tend to see people put investment properties in one name or the other, it's a little bit different with your owner occupied because you're not getting the tax uh, deductibility from that property. And then let's have a look at the serviceability side of the equation. So if you are purchasing an investment property in your own name and you have a partner and you potentially live with that partner, and let's say you've got other assets that you own with that partner, but you've got a stronger serviceability because you've got a higher income. Well, unfortunately, most of the lenders are still going to treat you as a de facto couple and they're still going to use your income for the purposes of the application, but they're going to calculate your minimum living expenses on having two adults in the household. So it can actually hurt you more so by putting that purchase and borrowing those funds in your individual name only. There are obviously, as there always are with lenders, uh, caveats to this and things that maybe change that scenario a little bit. There are some lenders that will look at what we call apportioning debt or apportioning policies where let's say you own let's say you own your owner occupied property with your partner and you're both jointly on that loan, but you want to buy an investment property by yourself and you've saved up your money and your deposit for that. The way that the lenders will assess it if they can apportion the debt and the expenses between the household, is they'll look at the income coming from the proposed property going into your name only. 
the loan against that property in your name only. So you need to obviously service that. However, for the existing property that is owner-occupied, what they will do is they will apportion that in half if we can confirm that you can meet, or when I say you, the other partner can meet their own half of the expenses of the household and cover half of the loan against the owner-occupied property, as well as any other loans that they have in their personal name. So there are some lenders, luckily, that will halve that. Whereas because you are both on the loan, the owner-occupied loan, the original loan that you have together, there are a lot of lenders who will look at you expending the proposed purchase against the income that you receive from it, but also expending the full owner-occupied debt because you're just as liable for that debt as your co-borrower or your partner is. And that can really kill borrowing capacity. So that's where I guess working with a broker can be really beneficial in looking at the different policies with the banks as to how they will assess ongoing commitments together if you plan on building out your own investment portfolio by yourself. By the same token, if you have if you do not have any joint commitments but your partner has liabilities in their name, that could potentially decrease your personal borrowing capacity if you were to buy together. And that may be a reason why one borrower decides to buy an investment property on their own and exclude the co-borrower or the partner from buying that property with them. In that case, again, it comes down to the lender policies, but so long as we can show to the lender or some lenders that will allow this, that your partner has the ability to meet their own commitments from their own individual income, and that would generally be half of the household expenses, as well as whatever debts are in their name, then we can just look at you almost like a single borrower that is purchasing a an investment or another property in your own name. So there definitely are ways around it. However, if you're in a relationship, it does become a little bit more complex if you're just wanting to buy something in your own name. And the last question is in regards to if I'm looking to buy my first home and I have a partner, are we both eligible for the first home buyer benefits if I if they then want to buy a property after me? Um, this is one that we get a little bit as well and it's one that you have to be really careful with because if you're de facto or in a relationship and you live in a property with your de facto partner and you then go buy your own property, let's say you were never on the loan or on the title of that property but you still lived with your de facto partner and benefited from living there, you may not be eligible to buy an owner-occupied property in your own name and receive the same first-term buyer concessions. It is generally limited to one couple only, not one, not each individual in the couple. So you're probably better off not restricting yourself on your individual borrowing capacity, but buying something that you can put both of your borrowing capacities towards and take the first-term buyer benefits once or don't limit yourself to just what the first-term buyer benefits give you if that's not going to achieve what you want to achieve in a property either. If you've got really, really strong borrowing capacity as a couple, uh, but you only want to buy up to 700000 to save some stamp duty, yet you have to live further out or you can't buy a house, you can only buy a unit, but you would have had capacity to borrow and buy for a million, then you probably want to look at what's actually going to be more beneficial for you long-term and not just saving on $10,000, $20,000 worth of stamp duty. So there we have it. They are the Q&A questions for today's episode, which was off the back of last week's episode around purchasing your first property. What type of property should you buy? If you haven't listened to last week's, definitely go back and have a listen to that. 
And hopefully today he gave you a little bit more context and allowed you to get the answers to some of those key questions that you wanted to consider in answering that question as well. Looking forward to speaking to you all next week. I hope you have a wonderful weekend and we'll see you then. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of You Have My Interest. Remember to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. To find out more about how Everlend can help educate and empower you to achieve your goals with finance and property, just visit everlend.com.au forward slash podcast and book in a free discovery call.